This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 239. Today we speak with Dr. Brandon Crow about Deuteronomy and Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 239. My name is Camden Busey. I'm here uh, in studio at Westminster Theological Seminary. Very thankful to them for providing us a space to record. Uh, we have a bunch of people here with me. Also, uh, we have a panelist on Skype all the way from Georgia. I'll introduce him to you first. We have Nick Batzig, who is church planter with the PCA in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Welcome back to the program, Nick. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Great to be back on. Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to hear you, have you patched in. Uh, We have in studio today, we're uh, welcoming back to the program, we have Carlton Wynn, who is a PhD student at Westminster Theological Seminary working on systematics. Actually, he's a candidate. He's a PhD candidate. Welcome back, uh, Carlton. It's great to have you. It's been a while. But uh, it's great to have you here in studio, and we're very excited to welcome to the program for the first time Dr. Brandon Crow, who is Assistant Professor of New Testament uh, at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome to the program, Brandon. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really interested to speak with uh, Dr. Crow today. Uh, We're going to be talking about a new book, a relatively recent book, The Obedient Son, Deuteronomy and Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a published dissertation. Uh, from Edinburgh, the University right. of Edinburgh, and uh, we're going to be getting into this. So I'm really excited not only to talk about biblical theology, we do that quite often, but uh, get into some biblical studies and actually looking at texts, uh, which um, is something we need to do more of, and we're hopefully going to be doing some of that in some uh, new programs down the road. More info on that later. Uh, But before we get started with our book today, I should mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We want you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. We do have expenses. It costs. Uh, We try to make all these. We do make all of our resources available free of charge, but it does uh, cost for equipment and whatnot and and delivery. Um, And the more people that download, the more it costs. But uh, we are thankful so much for all of the support we receive. So join in with all of your listening friends at reformedforum.org slash donate today. We want to thank everybody for their support of everything we do here at Reformed Forum in this particular program, Christ the Center. Now, I guess I'll get started, Brandon. Uh, I already mentioned this is a published dissertation, but uh, this is through DeGruder. Can you tell us a little bit about DeGruder <laughs> and uh, maybe give people um, just a, a little bit of a context in terms of uh, uh, their typical publications and what to expect if they're going to pick this volume up. It's not your typical uh, crossway book, for instance. That's, that's right. Uh, Walter de Gruder is, I think, a Dutch name, yeah. but it's a Berlin publisher based out of Berlin, and uh, they do a lot of academic publishing. Mm-hmm. And so they um, they have series. This is a series that this is in, and supplements to Z and W is a journal, which is a site drift with a Neuen Testament, like a Wissenschaft, and it's very prestigious journal well it's yeah it has a lot of good stuff in it traditionally yeah. and so it's, it's articles in german and in english uh, and um this is their supplements to that and they have series in new testament old testament uh, all sorts of different disciplines but this is a book that only the most dedicated 
student would want to actually pick up no, and buy it. You know, it's, uh, it runs in the hundred dollar over the hundred dollar range. So it's a uh, it's definitely an academic type of book, one that libraries will purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some people who are actually studying these things in depth or get one for a book review or something, but. Uh, yeah, it's not your typical crossway type of price range. <laughs> for, for sure. I was just talking to our friend James Dolzell yesterday, and he's reviewing a book. I won't say which journals, so not to give anybody any ideas or whatnot, but this book is a Brill book, $340. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's going to do a review, and uh, it's going to be good. But uh, they said, are you really going to do a good review of this? You know, they're, they're, the editor is really double checking and making sure he's not just trying to get a free payday. You know what I mean? But, uh, Nick, we've done our fair share of, uh, of, uh, episodes on books that have uh, very large price tags. Haven't we? We have, as you guys are talking, I've been searching ethos electronic online services to see if I can find Brandon's uh, <laughs> dissertation, but they haven't put it up. That's where all the, uh, British, uh, doctoral dissertations are. I think you can find like Mike Horton's on Thomas Goodwin and um, other guys that did stuff at Oxford or Edinburgh. Yeah, um, there. But so we need to get them to put it on, so then <laughs> well, I can read it. Well, certainly. I mean, people in the field, a hundred dollars is not certainly out of the range for a book that's in your field. But even people that just want to read it casually, we we always stress you can get interlibrary loan. This is not. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, even if you don't have the money, a lot of times people will will email us and ask us, "Well, is there a cheaper way to get the book or whatnot?" What a lot of times people forget that there are th- things called libraries, and uh, you know, nowadays almost every library, at least that I know about, it's connected in one way or another to another library. That's so, right. uh, you know, that's always a useful tool, even if it's just a public community library, maybe even at a grade school. You know, oddly enough, you'd probably be able to find a way to get a loan from a theological library somewhere in the world. They, it's amazing. <laughs> so anyway, I want to uh, encourage our listeners to 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 uh, do that, and uh, that's one way to get your hands on uh, some books that normally might be out of your price range. Uh, but so we're really excited to have this here. Um, I appreciate the way it's uh, laid out and whatnot, and, and it's uh, very readable. And Brandon did a lot of work uh, to get it uh, to this uh, to this state, and we appreciate that. I know how much that effort that can be. James has told me in, in his volume, he uh, he likewise did a lot of effort to uh, to make things accessible and uh, readable for people. Uh, but why don't you let us know here? Um, we'll skip over the, some of the earlier chapters uh, <laughs> just for the sake of you know people that might be driving a car. But but <laughs> I, I I um don't mean to demean it. But could you let listeners know a little bit about what's in those early chapters just so they know? Uh, that that where we're going to start actually has a foundation, and uh, you're working with some prior knowledge here. Yeah, and should I give an overview of the whole book? Yeah, why don't you do that? Yeah. Well, the book is uh, – the title maybe will help you there. It's called Deuteronomy and Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. That's the subtitle. Yeah. It's The Obedient Son. And what I'm doing in this book is as I'm trying to trace out what is the background, what's the rationale for – the obedience of Jesus as Son of God, which is a, an element of Christology in the New Testament that many people will point to it. Jesus as Son of God is obedient. And so the question I'm coming to in this project is, is what is the background, the basis? Why did the authors portray Jesus as obedient in his role as Son of God? And so that's what this, uh, this project overall is tackling 
And so in the first chapter, what I'm doing is looking at Matthew's use of the Old Testament. It's, it's focused on the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to argue that it comes from Deuteronomy uh, primarily, or at least foundationally. And so I'm looking at different ways that Matthew uses Scripture in uh, citations, allusions, uh, different sort of, uh, of versions of the Old Testament he may have known, things like that. And the second chapter is to set a, a foundation for why Deuteronomy? Why am I saying Deuteronomy is so prevalent? And it's it's a twofold chapter. It's on text criticism, basically, of Deuteronomy, looking at the um, uh, the prominence of Deuteronomy in textual uh, fragments that we may find in various places, and also, secondly, it's looking at the use of Deuteronomy in other documents, documents that were well known. How did they use Deuteronomy? Uh, and what I argue there is it's very prominent. It's one of the most widely known texts in the ancient world, and uh, text after text after text will reuse Deuteronomy, uh, use portions of Deuteronomy, or uh, structure themselves after Deuteronomy, or things like that. So that's what the first two chapters are. Wonderful. Now, what is the significance of Deuteronomy generally for Old Testament studies and Old Testament theology? What is its role? A lot of times, people that might uh, have brushed uh, the literature a little bit, we'll have heard things like Deuteronomic history, that kind of thing, the Deuteronomist maybe even in certain spheres. Uh, what are we talking about and why is Deuteronomy, uh, why has Deuteronomy taken this place whereas, you know, Esther hasn't or something? Yeah, well, Deuteronomy, it's a good question. And uh, people do talk a lot about Deuteronomy these days, it seems like. And Deuteronomy is kind of a, a Janus figure, it, where it looks back towards the career of Moses, and it looks back towards Genesis through uh, through Numbers, and it it reflects on where Israel has been, uh, and it also looks forward to the future. And what you have is kind of the the uh, farewell speech of Moses, very literally towards the end of the book, but all throughout Moses, it's, it's a sermonic style. He is calling the people back to covenant faithfulness. He is reminding them of what God has done for them. And he's also looking ahead to the future. And he's telling them, he's warning them not to abandon God. Uh, you have the blessings and the curses towards the end of the book. And then you have Deuteronomy 32, which uh, we may come back to, I'm not sure. The very prominent portion of Deuteronomy uh, where he reminds them of God's faithfulness and then uh, looks ahead to how they will be unfaithful, but that they will return and God would restore them. And so it looks back towards the past but anticipates the future, and it sets the stage for what follows. It kind of it solidifies what has come before and reminds them that they're in covenant with God, sets down those covenant relationships and the stipulations very clearly. And what you see is the books that come later will be assuming Deuteronomy. It will be assuming the blessings and the curses. And so when you hear Deuteronomistic history, that can be a whole uh, – um, agglutination of things that, that people yeah. bring together to kind of like Hellenistic, theories. you know, who knows? It's, it's all sorts of things combined. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so uh, that can mean a lot of different things, but at base, what it generally means is the books that come later yeah. are building on Deuteronomy. Some people may take that in more the critical perspective and, yeah. and discount some things, but but as a general framework, what they're trying to say, or what many people might say by that, is is that Deuteronomy kind of sets the tone for what uh-huh. comes later. And there's this there's this view of return to the Lord, or you will face a cursing, something like that. I was amazed just how uh, you know when I started Old Testament studies here. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but when I was doing my Old Testament classes, just how significant. Deuteronomy is. I mean, even in passages like uh, Isaiah 65 uh, um, or earlier, I think the passage, I, I forget the chapter where uh, the Rabshakeh comes 
uh, to warn the Israelites of impending uh, an impending attack. And uh, you know what he does is he promises them the covenant blessings that are that the Lord promised them. And uh, and and uh, they say, "Don't listen to the Lord. We'll give you all this stuff." And so he offers really a counterfeit for the gospel. You know. In, in light of what we see in Deuteronomy. Um, and also the reversal of the curses we find in, in the new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65, uh, the things that are reversed are, are the curses that we find in Deuteronomy, the later chapters, 28, I believe, and, and, and following. And so it's really uh, a foundational document in many ways. It sets the tone, as you said, uh, theologically and, and uh, I don't know, the imagery as well. A lot of it comes from Deuteronomy. Um, what influence has recent scholarship on the surrounding cultures like ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties, covenant documents, those sorts of things? What have they uncovered um, about the time period that help us to understand what Deuteronomy is and what it was doing? Well, I'm glad you used the term suzerain vassal treaty. That sets it up nicely there. Uh, yeah, if you if somebody hasn't heard of that term, that's one that if you if you hang around long enough, you'll hear, you'll hear it. it. The suzerain vassal treaty. Uh, what we've done, we not me, but other scholars who have come yeah. before me have done, is look at Deuteronomy in its cultural context and seen that some of the elements of Deuteronomy were not created de novo, but they are uh, reflections of of the way that kings would deal with their people. And a suzerain is the word we have, the same word that I think we get czar from, or the Russians get the word mm-hmm. czar from. We yeah. don't use it very much. But Oh, now, uh, now our government does. We well, have czars well, for everything. Well, we, the suzerain vassal <laughs> treaty, rulers. the, uh, the suzerain vassal treaties, would, it would set forth, um, it would remind people how, how well that this king had treated this lesser king or this lesser people, and would give them uh, stipulations about things that they needed to do to pay tribute or to be faithful in some sense to that king and offer blessings or curses uh, and look forward to the future and say that this is a covenant in perpetuity. And so what we see when we look at Deuteronomy alongside those uh, similar features from the ancient Near East, we can see a lot of parallels with the way that God was communicating to his people in ways that they would understand uh, and in and positioning himself, presenting himself as a king, as a benevolent, great, mighty king, which uh, has overlap with the father figure, which which is is part of what I pick up on. And so as this king or maybe even this father figure uh, would, would love a people, would take care of them, uh, there's this famous section from a, a treaty of Ashurbanipal where it says, you will love Ashurbanipal as, your, as yourselves or, or with all your heart or something like that. And so there are parallels with that, but what, what God is doing is presenting himself as the king, showing his benevolence to his people, and uh, encouraging them to walk in faithfulness to him uh, with the reward of blessing. So clearly, I mean, Deuteronomy distinguishes itself from other documents because it is the inspired word of God. Absolutely. Um, and, and it is his truth. But yet at the same time, it's not sort of some um, document that is given or inspired um, just out of the blue. I mean, it does partake of uh, the immediate context uh, literarily, um, uh, covenantally. It's it's calling to mind things the people would have been aware of, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, who are some of the scholars that have dealt with that? And Meredith Klein, of course, in Structure of Biblical Authority, deals a lot with Deuteronomy. But is Mendenhall another? Who, what are some names? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mendenhall would be one of the first ones to kind of uh, bring these suzerain vassal treaties to right. the fore. 
Um, you've got uh, Meredith Klein, of course, is, is yeah. very prominent, but a whole host of other people who have built on them. I mean, if you're thinking about more on the evangelical side of things, you have uh, Gordon Paul Hugenberger, okay. uh, who's now in, in Boston. Uh, he has built on that. He has a, a, a pretty well-known dissertation on Malachi and Covenant mm-hmm. back in the late 80s, I believe it was published. Uh, and so a number of people have picked up on this and developed it. And, uh, I mean, you have people like Walter Eichrott who talked about covenants as a, a an He's organizing a feature mm-hmm. of Old Testament theology. Uh, I don't recall exactly how much he picks up on the cultural context as much, uh, but but covenant has been important in Old Testament studies and Old Testament theology uh, right. since you know, the, at least the 1960s or so as a prominent theme. Yeah. Now, now I just wanted to ask at this point, because I know a lot of our listeners may not completely agree with uh, even Klein's use of um, Susan Treaties. Um, what? In the, in the sense that saying, you know, Mendenhall kind of said, well, God, um, that uh, Moses looked into the culture and Moses wrote um, these things so that Israel would understand what he was doing. And Klein kind of baptized that and said, no, well, actually, Yahweh was doing that. Um, at the least, we can say there are similarities, right? Even if you didn't go all the way and, and say that God was doing that for Israel, looking at what the nations were doing, and then speaking in that, uh, the, the big word is the propinquity to those near in, in the near cultures to Israel. But we, w- we could at least say, if somebody objected to that, that, um, that um, the Prisca Theologica, that, that there are similarities in those cultures because God was already working through Noah and others covenantally, right? Yeah, I would say uh, however you take and how far ever you would want to follow Klein or somebody like that, now, there there are parallels there, and God is certainly at work before uh, right. a, 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 in other places. So uh, I would be comfortable with either way of saying it, with either uh, with, with what you just said. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things I also argue is that there are differences. It's not as though this is simply a repetition of what right. you find in those other cultures. One of the points I I try to argue for is that this fatherhood language that's associated with the kingly language, what you find in Deuteronomy, I argue, is it's much more uh, intimate and much mm. more of a, of a father like we might think of today, much more of a caring, nurturing, um, protecting sort of, uh, of image and portrayal of God as kingly father. Yeah, that is That's interesting. Great. That's great. Now, what about for uh, New Testament studies? Is Deuteronomy... Um, significant at all for New Testament studies? We hope so. Otherwise, we have a problem That's with right. this book, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Deuteronomy is looked to as one of the probably at least third or so most referenced book in the New Testament, top five for sure. Uh, but it's it's used a lot because it has been such an important book and such a prominent book. And when you're talking about um, laws that Paul might pick up on or that uh, Matthew might pick up on when he's uh, recording Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, you have a lot of... of flashbacks to Deuteronomy, and you have, of course, you have the prophet like Moses who will come, Deuteronomy 18 in the New Testament, uh, that was certainly a very prominent expectation. Uh, You have uh, passages, uh, Deuteronomy 32 is a passage that I argue is very prominent in in Deuteronomy and in the ancient world and in the New Testament. And so you get language such as this generation, faithless generation. Uh, A lot of people would trace that, and I would trace that probably back to Deuteronomy 32. Uh, You have... Uh, of course, the discipline of, of a father for his children, the way that God disciplines his people from Deuteronomy 8. Of course, you have that in the temptation narratives. It's picked up in probably places like Hebrews. Uh, God disciplines us. Of course, it might be running through the, the, the lens there of Proverbs or something, but 
Deuteronomy is foundational in, in all those ways. And, it's, and some of those key texts are texts that you'll see mm-hmm. repeated in the New Testament. Don't muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. You know, yeah. Everybody's favorite Old Testament passage. And, <laughs> then Paul uses it to speak about ministers and that's right. what's owed them. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Hey, Camden, can yeah. I just ask Brandon a quick Absolutely. question about Deuteronomy 21? I know I may be anticipating a more detailed discussion about some of those texts, but I have heard many... Um, uh, biblical theological pastors or theologians talk about the you know the disobedient the drunkard and glutton son and he is he's the one to be taken to the elders and stoned and then um, ultimately hung on the tree and Paul obviously quotes cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree do you think w- that we are intended when we come to the New Testament to see uh, the accusation against Jesus that they said look a drunkard and a glutton that that's a reflection back on um, Deuteronomy 21, and that he as the obedient son, who is not a drunkard and a glutton, is treated as one um, as a representative. Do you think that that's uh, intended by the Holy Spirit? Well, it certainly seemed like like it to me, based on a number of parallels. I mean, if you look at Deuteronomy 21, and uh, as you mentioned, it's the, the passage where uh, the son is stoned at the gate for being rebellious and a, a drunkard and a glutton, uh, the incorrigible son, as some have called him. When you look at that in comparison with a passage like Matthew 11, uh, where it says they called him a glutton and a drunkard in reference to Jesus, the words actually aren't the same words, uh, but the whole context screams, I think, to be read in Matthew 11 uh, in light of Deuteronomy 21, uh, because Jesus is so prominently known as Son of God. Uh, by the way, Nick, you are, this is something that is covered, and so uh, it, it is a very relevant, uh, relevant question. And, and you have the religious leaders uh, who are coming after him and are accusing Jesus of being uh, a glutton and a drunkard and the rebellious son because he is uh, he is eating and drinking with uh, with people that they would view as you know not not the most reputable. Right. Uh, but what I'm actually argue is there actually is it's a, an ironic statement there because uh, Jesus of course is not the oh, dis, the disobedient or incorrigible son. He's the obedient son. Right. And if we read. The way that Deuteronomy 32 and other passages develop faithless Israel, my faithless children, my faithless sons, what we might actually have is the religious leaders being portrayed as part of this faithless generation, uh, who, and that also comes from Deuteronomy 32. They may be actually portrayed as disobedient children versus Jesus who is viewed as the obedient son. And of course that's related to the reason why they want him crucified and that comes right back to the body hung on the tree is cursed in Deuteronomy 21. And of right. course Paul picks up on that explicitly in Galatians 3. And so yeah, those things you mentioned sounds uh, like it's going in, in the way that I would probably want to take it, um, not knowing all the details about how you've heard it, but, but there, I think there are very, very clear connections in those two, uh, two texts. That's good. That's helpful. Now, some other texts here in Deuteronomy before we uh, move on to just general ancient literature. We have Deuteronomy 8.5, where Yahweh disciplines his son Israel. 14.1, which is an explicit reference to Israel as God's son. And Deuteronomy 32, we mentioned that a few times, which is the Song of Moses. How, how are the themes there in Deuteronomy 32, key themes really for the entire book? Yeah, Deuteronomy 32 is, is often called the Song of Moses. Some people call it. Uh, the Song of the Sea and Exodus, the Song of Moses as well. But generally, this is called the Song of Moses. And this is what you could point to as the farewell address of Moses as he looks back and he looks ahead. Uh, and so what we have is, is it's a poetic statement of Moses. It's a song. 
And what has been argued, and it seems like it has some merit to this argument, is that uh, whenever you have a song like that inset in the midst of the Hebrew narrative, is it's actually kind of summing up some points, a climactic statement, an emphatic statement. And so you have this Deuteronomy 32 right towards the end of Deuteronomy, right at the end of the Pentateuch, looking forward to what comes next. And it's a song. And it seems as though this is not just one more chapter in Deuteronomy, but you can make the argument that this is a climactic summary and a, uh, one of the high points of the entire book. Uh, and, and feeding right into that is, the themes that you see through Deuteronomy, such as Deuteronomy 8 and 14, are also prominent themes in Deuteronomy 32. It's God is portrayed as a father with children who have gone astray. He is perfect as the rock or as our father, but they are disobedient. Uh, and you have that at the beginning of the song and then all the way towards the end. If you look at the textual variant, which are probably uh, better texts in verse 43, you have another mention at the end of the song that kind of uh, brings it all home. So there's a it's a prominent passage in which the sonship of Israel is a prominent theme. Hmm. We also find other themes you mentioned there, filial themes of election and love and inheritance also rich in Deuteronomy, right? Absolutely. The uh, I look at some of those texts, but beyond just the texts that speak of Israel as sons, you have some very rich themes that build on the, the father-son metaphor, the, uh, the relationship that's portrayed in terms of father and son. Uh, you have uh, the election, God's love for Israel, his son. Uh, you have the love where God has loved Israel in ways that are, are, uh, are amazing. And you have the inheritance. And, of course, the son is the one that has the inheritance. And so uh, the, these themes of love and, and, and election and uh, love and obedience are two themes that go hand in hand. And one of the things that, I, that I'm doing is connecting all of these back to covenant. And so these are all viewed in a covenantal context. And, and so the love is the love of a covenant. It's, it's not just an emotional sort of thing. It is that, but it, it goes beyond it to a covenantal love, a covenantal obedience. And so these texts and these themes, they're all kind of coalesced back into, under the rubric of covenant. Now, can I ask a question, uh, Camden, real quick that's pertinent, I think, in this discussion, especially with a lot of the confusion over covenant in our days and um, – and an answer, a question I don't really have an answer to. We view Israel covenantally as a son, as God's elected corporate son. Um, we would not do the same thing with the new covenant church, the new Israel, would we? Is that a question you, for me? Yes, yes. Well, I think that it grows out of that, but I think what you have to do is you have to filter it through the lens of Christ, who is the representative corporate son. Right. Uh, and... Um, and so Christ, as you have the corporate Israel as son, uh, that is particularized to some degree in the Old Testament through the royal Davidic kingly son. And then as you come to the New Testament, that has to run through the lens of Christ, who is the representative king and the representative Israel. Uh, right. And then from there, you could work it out in different ways. But I think, to, you, you, of course, you have the visible-invisible church distinction, uh, but you, you would run it through first through the lens of Christ, and, and that might help some maybe with that question. I don't know if it does or not. So, you so didn't plant an invisible then, church, a, did you? There was something unique about national theocratic Israel in redemptive history until the obedient son came. They were viewed corporately as the elect son. Yeah, I think, uh, broadly speaking, you would say that. And, of course, within within Israel, you, also, you always had people in covenant that were truly in covenant with God and those that, that may not have truly been in covenant with God, even in the Old Testament, I think. Oh, sure, sure, sure. sure. 
That's a good point. Brandon, I think uh, your book is helpful. I'm, I'm not familiar with it, but just so far from the discussion, it helps enhance our understanding beyond just Exodus 4.23 where God says, let my son go. I mean, this is a rich uh, theme for the life of Israel. Can you help us understand how the themes of obedience and sonship transition now through ancient Jewish and Christian literature as we, as we head into the New Testament? So, so are you asking then about pre-New Testament? Either well, or, yeah. yeah. Later Just books in the Old extra Testament. Extra biblical, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, well, what you find is that these, these themes that I'm arguing for of sonship and obedience, uh, are, I argue that they are prominent in Deuteronomy. Uh, but what I found striking was that you can go through all these other texts, and texts that seem to echo Deuteronomy in a number of ways. They also pick up on on the sonship and the obedience as connected themes, and that's what I argue for in Deuteronomy. These are very much connected themes, and as you trace it through the prophets, as you trace it through uh, the Apocrypha and some of the uh, pseudepigraphal books, what I found is uh, a book like Jubilees 1, for example, is that whenever Israel is, uh, is referred to as sons, the hope is that one day they will be obedient sons. Or the, the sonship of Israel is invoked to rebuke them for not being covenantally faithful. And so sonship is a way to kind of, I think, peak the emotional content and, and remind people of God's people, of his love for them and his care for them, and encourage them to be uh, those sons who walk in faithfulness, sons of his truth, uh, or uh, or rebukes them for being faithless children. You can see that even in Jeremiah three and four, for example, that it's uh, God's children are all too often known as sons who were not faithful sons, and they were not. And, and there's there's this interesting text in Proverbs four, and it says, "When I was a son to my father," and uh, and Bruce Walkie argues there that that is actually a when he says, when I was a son to my father, the implication is, when I was an obedient son to my father. And that's exactly what the Septuagint does. It says, when I was an obedient son. And so these, these themes are very much, I see, as two sides of a coin to some degree. It's that the sons are called to be obedient, and if they are not, then there's a problem. And there's rabbinic debates about this. That The rabbis would debate, if Israel is unfaithful, are they still God's sons or God's children? And they would go back and forth on this. And this also picks up, I think, in part from Deuteronomy 32, where God says, you are no longer my sons because of your actions. And so I see these themes as very often, and I was actually surprised how often those themes are related in not only biblical but also extra-biblical literature. I, th- I think the, 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 the link you're drawing between obedience and sonship, you're saying, is, is therefore more of a covenant command from, from the God of heaven and earth than a responsive um, uh, than a than than the, than a response of Israel on the part of God's uh, commands to. Them. In other words, the emphasis of this tight link between obedience and sonship, as it pertains to Israel in the Old Testament, uh, would you agree, is to highlight their disobedience? Well, it does that, but I think it does more than that. I think it also uh, shows them God's love for them and encourages them to walk in obedience. Uh, I think that it's also used as for lack of a better way, an emotional plea to them. It's, a, it's an emotionally heightened, I think to some degree, uh, phrase and, and concept. And so whenever that is utilized, it, it brings home with kind of more force, how could you turn your back on the God who is your father? Right. Yeah. Now, of course, one of the big features uh, when we think about uh, the New Testament and Deuteronomy, and especially the you know, Deuteronomy in 
Matthew. Uh, we're initially going to think about Matthew 4, especially 1 through 11, which is a temptation narrative. You know, not, not just simply an illusion here, but actual quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, can you set this up for us and let us know a little bit about the significance of what the God-man is doing when he responds to uh, the tempter? Absolutely. I think what I would do is I would start in Matthew 3. Yeah. Uh, because in Matthew 3, you have the baptism of Jesus. Sure. Jesus, of course, identifying with Israel. Mm-hmm. It says he is there uh, to fulfill all righteousness, as he's, he says that while he is there with John. And, of course, as he comes out of the water, up out of the water, you, you hear the divine voice, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so you have Jesus, who has already been portrayed as Son there, and in chapter 2, and I would argue in chapter 1, the divine Son. Uh, when you come to chapter 4, it's clear that Jesus is Son of God. And the first temptation, of course, is from Deuteronomy 8. Well, let me back. first temptation of Jesus in the desert, the text that comes up is Deuteronomy 8, man should not live by bread alone, which is uh, right in that same context of Deuteronomy 8.5. It's 8.3 there, but 8.5 is a text that says, uh, I disciplined you as a son. Uh, that's the, my paraphrase. And so uh, what Jesus is doing there is uh, coming through the waters just like Israel did. He's going out into the wilderness, a place of testing, a place where his sonship now is being tested. And that's what Satan focuses on. It says, if you are the son of God. And it says that in the first two um, uh, temptations there, if you are the son of God. And what's interesting there is he may, not, he may be assuming God, the, the sonship of Jesus. Not, are you really, but since you are the son of God... Show me by turning these stones into bread. And then Jesus responds, of course. It's a very rich passage, and you can only scratch the surface in, uh, in the time we have here. And I have certainly have only begun to scratch the surface in, in what I've argued in the book. But uh, you see Jesus responding in the way that a true son should and being faithful in reliving the experience of, of Israel and putting himself in their position of need and in overcoming that by his faithfulness to God's word as the true son of God. It's it's interesting that Matthew, you know, opens with the genealogy that it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, that he starts with Abraham, who, you know, is the father of Israel. And as you've noted, you know, goes down into Egypt, out of Egypt, um, uh, through the waters, into the wilderness, up in the mountain, down from the mountain. And then on and on, it seems like Jesus is recapitulating Israel's history, even in, in chapter 23, when he says, woe to you, all the woes, that really mirrors the prophetic ministry of the prophets to Israel later in their history. Um, Do you think that's the overarching structure of Matthew, that Jesus is recapitulating Israel's history? I think it's definitely something that you see in Matthew is the recapitulation. And and that's a term that Matthean scholars will throw around all the time is recapitulation. And I think that's an excellent word. Uh, As far as the structure, I think you do see it uh, time and time again in Matthew, I would look at the actual structure probably. I mean, people debate this, but I would look at the actual structure to be focused around the discourses of Jesus and the narratives that kind of go back and forth. Uh, but I think that you do certainly see that all throughout, uh, throughout the, because Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the Scriptures, and he's the fulfillment of Israel's history, and he's the fulfillment of, of God's Son. And so these things don't just happen in the temptation, for example, or, or don't just happen in, in chapter 3. They, you do see that throughout the book. I think that's, I think that's right on. Now, now, Brendan, some would say, I know I'm taking you out of Matthew here, but, but um, in Luke's Gospel, at the end of chapter 3, he's giving another genealogy 
Uh, Nick mentioned the one in Matthew, and he ends by saying uh, the son of Adam, the son of God, and then it launches into the baptism and temptation narrative. Now, some would say that Jesus in that temptation narrative is not only recapitulating, as you said, the history of Israel and being the faithful, obedient son, but but that Israel as a nation was in some sense recapitulating the sin and fall and exile of Adam, God's original son in the garden. Do you see any evidence of that in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, I certainly think there are parallels between Adam and um, and Christ, and of course that is very clear in New Testament theology. Adam and Israel, too. And Adam and Israel, yes, Mm -hmm. I think you do see those parallels. Uh, And it's actually interesting. I think there are more Adam typologies, Adam parallels in the Gospels uh, that that are not often picked up upon. Uh, But that passage there in Luke is certainly a very interesting one, where (laughs) son of Adam, son of God, and there's so many implications of that. And, and so I do think that we can see a parallel between uh, Adam and Israel and Adam and Christ, and, and you can work those out different ways, but I, I think those are certainly there. One thing, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Lane Tipton, the professor of uh, biblical and systematic theology here, he likes to emphasize in his, well, of course, he used to teach doctrine of man, but of course, in his other other uh, lessons, you know, he talks about Adam as the protological son and Israel as the typological son and Christ as the eschatological son. It's it's interesting to see those parallels and those things come out. Of course, we think of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, but there's a lot going on with, with Israel and Deuteronomy uh, that, that, that teach us uh, even more than what we would have known, perhaps, if, if that typology didn't happen, if all we had was a garden narrative and then Christ. Uh, the fact that uh, we have all this history of Deuteronomy and the nation's behaviors and, and successes and mostly failures um, really illumines the gospel, does it not? It certainly does, but what, because what you see is this deepening of God's love. Yeah. And Deuteronomy has been called the book of love par excellence because mm. it, love is such a prominent theme, and God's fatherhood is part of that. And, and, and the very fact that God uh, portrays himself as a father and Israel is his son. I mean, this is... Uh, it goes back to Exodus 4, uh, out of Egypt I have called my son. And then uh, then it's developed more and more in Deuteronomy where you see that emotional sort of intimate language being developed. And Moses, of course, reminds them of how much God has done for them, how much he has loved them, how Israel him, themselves is God's inheritance. And um, and it gives them instructions, and, and there's the blessings and the curses at the end. And the, the, the tragic thing about Deuteronomy is, is you read it towards the end and, there's all of these curses, all of these curses, all of these curses, and and you, Moses says, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you you will be faithless to your faithful God, and so it's. I mean, it's certainly a book that if we read, I think hopefully with the eyes of faith, it will wake us up and say, wow, this look at this great tragedy of the way that Israel trampled God's love underfoot, and it's a warning for us, and it's a. It's also a, a great testimony to God's grace that he continued to pursue Israel, continued to provide a way, and would eventually send his own son uh, to be the answer to their filial rebellion. Um, Brandon, I read, I guess maybe a year or so ago, an article by a guy named David McLeod. Um, it was on the temptation of Christ. And going back to Matthew 4 and what you were saying about um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and um, you know, clearly being tested on him being the son of God. And McLeod actually highlights, and I was, I want your thoughts on this because I had never heard this, but Jesus's response of the, um, Jesus's response with, uh, to, to the devil with the three quotations out of Deuteronomy. If you look at those places in Deuteronomy, the basically 
Um, you have the history of the manna, which parallels the stones turned to bread. The testing at Massa um, requiring a miracle, which obviously would parallel um, him asking Jesus to throw himself off the temple. And then the worship of the golden calf, maybe. Um, it, do you think that's too artificial, trying to parallel the three specific temptations to Israel and then uh, the three specific temptations put to Jesus? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I haven't seen that article um, there's certainly a number of, I think, deep-level correspondences going on in that text with, with Deuteronomy. And so it wouldn't surprise me if he can make a case for that. I would have to look at the article, of course. But, uh, but I, as I said a while ago, we can only scratch the surface of all the, of all the depths and the richness of that passage. And so yeah. it would not surprise me at all if something like that is there uh, where you could actually match them up in those ways. I haven't seen that, but it, yeah, it very, very well might be a possibility because I do think there is a number of correspondences there. And if you write you know, a few pages on it, you're just scratching the surface. Nick, right, right. Nick, there's some there's some uh, article out there, and I, and I don't know the name of it, but would take it all the way back to the garden again, and in more general fashion, say that those three temptations deal with food, right. with idolatry, and with the testing of God's word, and that that occurs. Those are the same uh, deceptive ploys Satan urges against uh, Adam and Eve, as well as uh, Israel's enemies in the wilderness. Well, that kind of leads us into, in terms of you know God's righteous demands, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I think, um, what type of allusions or Deuteronomic uh, themes do we find in Matthew five through seven? If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually not only references to Deuteronomy, but there's a surprising number, perhaps, of references to sonship and God's fatherhood. Oh, yeah. And so you you get both of those things there. But you have Jesus given a new law, just as Moses did. Uh, you have some syntactical parallels there. Uh, and, and the fatherhood language is very strong in the uh-huh. Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yeah. And it's something that may not jump out at everybody as you read it, but it's if you think about it, you'll see how... Uh, some scholars even try to suggest that fatherhood is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, that it all focuses around the fatherhood of God. And so you have actually more references to uh, the disciples as sons of God in the Sermon on the Mount, along with um, the reference and the references to God as Father. Uh, but what you have then is Jesus given the new law, and as he does so, the uh, he talks about the sons and, and the Beatitudes. He talks about them again. This is in chapter 5. He talks about them again in, uh, in verse 45, I believe it is, of chapter 5 of being perfect. And so the uh, as he gives the new law, as he echoes Deuteronomy, he's calling them to be faithful sons again. And he's calling them back to their father and showing them what that looks like. And, of course, there's a Christological dimension to the righteousness, the righteous demands of God, because Jesus fulfills all righteousness uh, and being identified with righteousness is being identified with Jesus. If you look at the end of the Beatitudes, you see that that correlation there. And so it's not it's by no means de- detached from what Jesus does and has done. But you do see that the calling to obedience, uh, the new covenant in some senses for the new covenant community. What does it look like to be part of the Christian community? And that's what you find in the Sermon on the Mount. And there you have the prominent mention of sonship, which is interesting. Yeah. Also, uh, you move on next uh, after treating the Sermon on the Mount to uh, mentioning Matthew eleven sixteen through 19. I'll read just a, a snip of that. But to what shall I compare this generation? It, uh, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I think you alluded to this earlier, but what, what, uh, why is this treated here, and, and what connection might we make to uh, the themes of your, of your book? Well, I do cover Deuteronomy 21 as well in the chapter yeah. earlier on Deuteronomy, yeah. and it doesn't speak of Israel as a son per se, but it does illustrate what does it look like for a, a son to live in obedience to one's parents. Mm-hmm. And the threat there was, why was there such a, a strong sentence leveled against that son in Deuteronomy 21? That's a, an age-old question. Well, part of the answer, I think, is because to disregard and disobey one's parents in that manner, it probably was an habitual disobedience mm-hmm. and incorrigibility. That demonstrates not only a disobedience to one's parents, but a disobedience to God, who is who the parents are the visible manifestation in many ways of that. And it was probably an older son as well. And you know, we're not talking about a six-year-old, I don't think. <laughs> and so uh, what you have then is, is this harsh sentence because of the disobedience to God's commands through the parents, which was also a threat to the entire covenant community. And that's apparently what the leaders think of Jesus with these well, – and here's a, a turn of phrase that is one of the one I'm, ones I'm more proud of – the revelrous repasts <laughs> that Jesus has with these tax collectors and sinners. Uh, you know, when you're writing a dissertation, you kind of have to throw some of these things in there to keep yourself Wait, sane. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm glad <laughs> nobody asked me to change that one. So with these, with these uh, feasts that Jesus is having – he appears to be a glutton and a drunkard and fitting right into that theme that you see in Deuteronomy 21. And he was a threat, they thought, to the entire community. He is breaking the rules that the, uh, that, and their traditions that they have. And so this is where – I know we mentioned it earlier – but this is where they accuse him basically of being the disobedient son, and it will lead to his own crucifixion in many ways. And, of course, that passage in Deuteronomy 21 is followed closely with the body hung on the tree. And that's what we – I don't know if I mentioned that explicitly earlier – uh, but as I said, I think what you have here is, is not only an ironic statement that Jesus, of course, was not the disobedient son, but the obedient son, but the religious leaders may actually be portrayed because of a number of reasons, especially uh, references to this generation of, of people who are faithless sons. They may actually be portrayed as the disobedient sons there. So you have this, this very thick and reversal and this irony going on there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, how much Jesus, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, and I've just thought about this as you've been talking um, about your book, but how he addresses that he's the son to them, even in the parables where he says, you know, the, the owner of the vineyard will send him his son and say, this is my son. You know, they'll listen to him, but they kill him because they realize he's the heir and they want to be the heirs. And then in like John 8, where he has that whole discourse with the Jews, and he basically is convincing them, you're actually not sons, you're slaves. Um, so it is interesting that their mindset, the Jews' mindset was, we're the, we're the son of God. We, we are God's sons when they really were being themselves the disobedient um, rebels against God. Yeah, and, and even in De- uh, Matthew 3, I think, where John the Baptist is getting on to them, he says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. So there, the, the children of the sonship theme is, is mentioned that in that context as well. Um, Brandon, being a parent yourself uh, may lessen the shock of, of Romans 1, but, but some people read it, and, and I think they, they're, they're surprised at the, at the grievous, heinous, sins that Paul is listing there, ruthless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, I mean, um, foolish. But right before he says that, he throws in disobedient to parents. And as among the sins which unbelievers know uh, they deserve to die for, 
under God's judgment. And so I think uh, it just struck me that Deuteronomy 21 seems to shock people so much because of the the sanction that's imposed there. And yet Paul himself in Romans 1, when describing the sinful heart of the unbeliever who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, part of God's giving them over includes disobedience to parents. And that's an interesting connection, and it also reminds me of the Decalogue, which is what Deuteronomy 21, of course, grows out of and Deuteronomy 5. And you know, the traditional breakdown of the two tablets of the law, the first four refer to God, the second six to, to man, but the fifth one is transitional. Because right after the fourth commandment, you have, uh, and the honoring the Sabbath, you have honor your father and your mother, which is a kind of a transition. Again, you have, because that reveals the way that you would feel about God, the way you respond to your parents illustrates that. So that may also feed into it. That's why I love the larger catechism, especially on its uh, expansion and treatment of the fifth commandment. Uh, I took a class on Michel Foucault, and I kept thinking about the fifth commandment. <laughs> He's always talking about power relations and all this. And I'm thinking, man, I need some good Westminster, uh, you know, confession here. Uh, but it, you're exactly right. I think that it is uh, not simply just about your mom and your dad, but it's also about superiors and inferiors. And the superior ought to, <laughs> we need to include, you know, God. He is the ultimate superior, the absolute. And, um, it's really indicating our life, uh, our responsibilities, uh, both to the people that we are responsible for, but also the people we're responsible to. And so I, I, I appreciate that. It is a very clear theme. Yeah, um, Camden, I wanted to ask uh, Brandon his thoughts on, because I know he deals with the transfiguration and mm. uh, a little bit with how that reveals sonship in Matthew, especially Matthew 17, and obviously oh, yeah. God the Father saying, this is my beloved son, you know, listen to him. Um, God the Father speaks audibly, I think three times in the Gospels, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I think it's three times, and two of the three, he's speaking about the sonship of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Why is that so significant? Why, I mean... Obviously, everything you're you're bringing into this with your dissertation is, is answering that question. But um, why is God the Father's explicit, verbal, audible affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God so important? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know that I have the definitive answer. I'm sure I don't have the definitive <laughs> answer on that. Uh, but but and I've, I don't know if I've thought about it quite in that way. But yeah, it, it must, it seems as though, if we are to answer that, it seems like it must have something to do with the father delight in his son. And in the, in the perichoretic relations, even with, within the Godhead, because mm-hmm. it, it is the son who has come from the father and who is revealing his father. And so I would imagine that has something to do with it, though I would not venture to try to answer that definitively right now without much more Just thought. think, yeah, well, thinking on the fly, I... I mean, it's, it sounds like we might also have to connect it with the fact that there's a visible manifestation of his, you know, the radiance of his glory. So perhaps uh, the audible manifestation of God's approval has something to do with um, just the outward, the outward means in which this right, revelation right. is happening. It seems like it would be appropriate that that would be the case. There'd be a very explicit sound to go with a very visible picture, I assume. Yeah. yeah, and well, I, I do sort of address that because yeah. I, I do say that why is what is the the reason for which you see that that same voice is what you see in the baptism sure, as well. Sure, and it's the fulfillment of the righteousness. It's the it's Jesus being the Son and, and doing the things that He is called to do as Son, 
And once you see that through the baptism, after the baptism, it's the first instance, and, and then you hear the voice. And then as Jesus, uh, Matthew 17, of course, on the transfiguration, it's all wrapped up in the context of, of what he has just said at Caesarea Philippi, where he has said not only has Peter just said that you are the son of the living God, the Christ, the son of the living God, but he also says, Jesus begins from that moment to say, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to hand me over to the leaders, and I'm going to be killed and uh, and he'll eventually tell them he will rise again. And so you have this confirmation that Jesus is doing the right thing, that he is not about to be defeated. And like like Schweitzer, as someone might have thought, the will of the world turned on him and it crushed him. No, he knows what he is doing. He is going to the cross. He has been the obedient son. He will continue to honor his father. And even though it will lead through suffering and death, uh, what you have there in the transfiguration, at least in part, is a is a confirmation of Jesus's sonship and his mission and uh, and his glory even in the face of the impending suffering. One thing you point out here, um, just on these passages, Matthew three seventeen and Matthew seventeen five, uh, because this is Christ the center, and we can do this. I'm just going to read the Greek. Why not? Hutos estin ha huios mu ha agapetos enho yudakesa is in both. Uh, word for word, uh, identical. But in seventeen five, he adds "akuata autu." Listen to him. Mm. What um, is the significance of that? Listen to him happening later in seventeen, and not necessarily in three quite yet. How might that indicate the fact that not only is he obedient son, but he's also God? He's also God. Yeah, I, or, or Lord. It's I, I find yeah. it interesting that you have now. Um, well, well, what what do you see in terms of why why might Isaiah listen to him, and that comes after a, a, an obedient life, yeah, rather than early in, when his visible earthly ministry begins? Uh, one of the first things that I think of there is the Deuteronomy 18 passage, where a prophet like Moses will come, and then you will mm-hmm. listen to him. Now the words are switched in the Septuagint. It's uh, it's uh, let's see, where are we? Where are we here? Instead of Alcuita, Alcuita, or yeah, okay, or, or whichever, whatever it is in Matthew, it's switched in the Septuagint. Is that a chiasm then? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, that's the that's deep Absolutely. structure of the scriptures there. It starts Deuteronomy 18 and Matthew 17. That's, that's it's crux. all a chiasm in between. A new, uh, it's the crux of the dissertation. J- yeah. <laughs> no. There's a new uh, article there for somebody. In- <laughs> no, I don't think it's a chiasm. Uh, well, I think it may go back, at least again in part, to Peter's slowness and the disciples' slowness to understand what Jesus has just said, that he is because Peter, James, and John, of course, are there with Jesus on the mount. He has just said that he is going to go suffer and die. And what does Peter say? We all remember, uh, no, far be it from you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And, and Jesus says, he may have just said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But then he rebukes him, of course, very strongly. And he shows him that this is necessary for his task. And it's something that they did not seem to anticipate. And so this may be a way to reinforce that. Not only do they see Jesus' glory in the in the face uh, of the impending suffering, but they hear the divine voice saying, by the way, guys, you better listen to him because he is my son, my beloved son, and you listen. And, of course, Jesus has already given us uh, many um, portions of, of didactic teaching in oh, Matthew. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, you got the Sermon on the Mount. You mm-hmm. have you know, Matthew 15. You have uh, Matthew 10. And so you have all of these things that you've already seen to this point. So it could be a reflection back on those as well as what follows. Hmm. Brandon, you're a, an ordained 
minister. Is that right? The PCA, yeah. right? The PCA. Right. PCA. I'm Nick, curious. I'm outnumbered three but to I'm one not, here. No, I'm not the only PCA guy on here anymore. At least one of them attends awesome. all the church. I'm curious to know, uh, Brandon. Aside <laughs> from the um, just the the rich academic work you put together here, how you think this ought to bear on the life of the Christian in the church? It seems that in recent years. Um, forensic realities like justification and adoption have functionally ended up in uh, a diminishing emphasis on on the necessity of Christian obedience in Christ. And I, I remember on reading in your in your dissertation here, you say, uh, indeed, obedience may even be the primary significance of the father-son relationship. It seems that the the, the crux of your dissertation, the the honest crux, this tethering of obedience and sonship together uh, could provide an, uh, a helpful corrective for modern ideas of, uh, uh, of an emphasis on familial adoption leading to, you know, I'm an adopted son, therefore God's going to love me. And, and you're really not coupling that with a robust understanding of, yes, because we are adopted in Christ, therefore we're called to obey him. Um, do you have any thoughts on that with respect yeah. to the life of the church today? Well, I think there there are some implications there. Um, the, um, I mean, our tradition teaches us that justification and sanctification go hand in hand, and you you can't have one without the other. So this may be a uh, kind of a parallel theme to that. Uh, what we see is the rich love of God for His people, and it's a it's a covenantal love. It's a uh, very uh, intimate and. Um, and moving love, and that should, um, as it did for Israel, should move us to see just how uh, how great, greatly we are loved, and, and what a privilege it is to be in covenant with God. Not only that, but He has sent Christ, uh, who, by the way, is the model of this. He's He's not only God's beloved Son, but the obedient one, and He, he is our. Yes, He He saves us, and we're not here to try to redo what Christ has done, but He is the model. He shows us what it looks like. And so as we have these, things to, these two things wedded together in Christ, uh, that's the ideal. That's, the, that's our, our model, our elder brother. And so what we have is, is the love of God, the grace, the unmerited favor of God for us in, in adoption. And as we bring it through in the, uh, in the New Testament era, adoption through Christ, through the work of Christ, through the one who... Christ himself fulfills all righteousness, and there's a unique sense in which he does that and which we cannot do. Uh, and he is the one who fulfills his Father's will. He is the one who pays the penalty for our sin. And, of course, we can no, in no ways approach uh, the efficacy of his work in any way. Now, having said that, it's very clear that he calls his children to follow in his steps, to also do the will of his Father, to be obedient sons, to, uh, to, live, out, uh, to live out this calling, this new identity, if you want to use that term, uh, and so these two things are not separated, but but they continue to be related in the New Testament, I think. Uh, you find it in the Old Testament, and I think in the New Testament it's, it's still there. It's, you know, God loves us as sons, therefore he disciplines us. So, you know, that's Hebrews um, um, 12. Uh, and you have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You are sons of the Father. What a great privilege. Therefore do the will of the Father. And he has that very hard saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And so you see this, this continuing focus on my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my Father. Uh, and you see Philippians 2. You know, be, uh, don't be these faithless children, but be like sons of, of your God who are shining as stars. I forget the actual wording, but I think it's also picking up on Deuteronomy 32. And so you just see it uh, time and time again. 
I think, in the New Testament. These things, there's not a wedge driven between them. Yes, it's through Christ, and it's only through Christ that we can share in this great privilege of being sons. But along with that comes, I mean, to use the justification and sanctification analogy, along with that comes the call to live out our calling to our faithful Father in a way that reflects, as Matthew 5 says, being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so I, I see those things very closely wedded together. That's a helpful I, way to put it. I just it. heard a minister say um, that about justification and sanctification, it would be wrong for us to think about them as linear, like, okay, I've got justification now, sanctification, as if justification plays no role anymore. And probably with adoption and sanctification, you could say the same thing, that it's not, okay, yeah, you've, I've been adopted, now I don't need to ever ever think about adoption anymore, the adoption of free grace, adopted in the Son, you know, whoever receives him, whoever believes on him, to them he gives the authority, the right to be called sons of God, but that justification and adoption would be like the platform on which we are ever standing, and while standing on that platform, we're being sanctified and made into obedient sons. Is is that a helpful way to look at it? Instead of looking at it as a linear, we've got that, now let's move on. Justification and adoption are sort of platforms on which we're always standing, a solid foundation. Yeah, I think that could be a helpful way to look at it. And, um, and I'm not trying to replace the forensic categories with this, you know, th- oh, these no. other, other categories. Sure, uh, but, sure. But I think there are, you can make a parallel there. Distinct and, uh, yet inseparable yeah. facets of union with Christ. I think, you know, as long as we always understand adoption, justification, and sanctification, and all the blessings that come from our Lord come from union with Him. The, yep. And that union is possible because the Spirit regenerates us and the Spirit ties us and binds us to Christ by faith, Spirit-wrought faith. Who is the Son of God. Exactly. Right, right. So how do so, we get these benefits other than in Christ? That's that's what the New Testament overwhelmingly uh, you know, refers to our relationship to him in Christo. Uh, and that's not just an accident. It's, it's actually, you know, especially in Paul, teaching us how we relate. So it's fascinating to see that we have the righteousness imputed to us uh, from the obedient Son to us. We never, our works are never meritorious, never earn our standing with the Lord. However, uh, Romans 8.29 and others, we see that we're being conformed to the image of the Son. And that conformity is not just on the books forensically, but also it's transformative. And and we see that the, all the blessings from Christ, that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not only involve an exchange of our sin to him and his righteousness to us, but also a renewal of the whole person that happens throughout the entire course of a life and culminates, consummates in, in glorification. So we see that we likewise, like you've been teaching already, will become the obedient sons too, but only because of what Christ has done in our relationship to him. It's great. You know, when I was six or seven, I never thought Deuteronomy was like this. Why is that? Why is, what, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but honestly, why is Deuteronomy, you know, Pentateuch and whatnot, at least the conventional wisdom or foolishness, conventional foolishness is that it's boring stuff and doesn't have a whole lot to do with, you know, the good teachings of the, of, of the Bible and the gospel. Well, it does suffer from following after Leviticus and Numbers, I guess. <laughs> and it seems like a repeat, but you get through chapters 12 to 26, and there's a bunch of laws. And you think, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Where's Horeb? What's going on? Uh, but but when you, I think when you understand it's a sermon, then it, it yeah. helps. And as you get to the end, you get some – I mean, those those curses are pretty they're, pretty they're explicit. And, um, and so you can – and I think people may not – 
if they have a, a, a trouble or having trouble understanding Deuteronomy, it's just probably a framework for understanding what's going on. It's a sermon of Moses. He's mm. bringing home what he's already told them. He's reminding them. He's looking forward to the future, and he's giving them the reality of what's going to happen, the, the great possibility of blessing, uh, but then the dangerous reality of cursing as well. Mm. But, of course, at the end of the day, God's going to be faithful, and he will, uh, he will uh, take care for his children. Mm-hmm. Nick, have you ever preached uh, out of Deuteronomy? I no, I've preached on the temptation mm. Matthew four, and uh, have you know preached Jesus as true Israel out of that. I think I've preached on the covenant curses some as typological, mm. the darkness falling on that, Christ at Calvary, your... but just in a biblical theological way. So I'm I'm actually afraid to preach through, um, not so much Leviticus. I'd, I I would find it very challenging to preach through Deuteronomy. Mm. I, I mean, being honest, I I would not. I would want my congregation to be at a place where they had enough theological foundation. And maybe it's that's heavy. wrong because God heavy. gave it to Israel early. But Carlton, have you ever dealt with Deuteronomy uh, and sermons? I have not, but I'm, but I'm more convinced after this discussion <laughs> that it provides a necessary, honestly, a necessary yeah. background for yeah. understanding uh, God's declaration. Like, this is, this is my beloved son. Israel was my beloved son, but they went off the rails. Mm. You know, Adam was my beloved son, but this one is the one you, to whom you must listen because this is the one who will take away the sin of the world. And so, yeah, I, I think it is. The more, the more we read in the Old Testament, the more the New Testament comes alive. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that organic nature or union um, between the old and the new, we see it as one revelation. You know, I, I wonder, Camden, how mm-hmm. much uh, the lack of typological emphasis in pulpits and in ministries, and I mean, even dear brothers that I respect and think highly of, who I think are strong, systematic theologians, many times will will express to me that they're afraid to do typology because they're not sure if they're doing it properly. Mm. And this seems like a very, you know, hermeneutically based uh, typology issue. Would you guys mm-hmm. agree with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if, I think if you, don't, if, you, if you don't have a wide-angle grasp on the sweep of redemptive history, Deuteronomy will probably be more of an enigma to you. Mm. Um, you'll, you'll see the history of Israel. You'll see their failure. You'll lament at their failure. You'll see the greatness of God's love. But I think from the pulpit, you might be a little bit at a loss as to what to do with that. Mm. Yeah, and let me just interject. I've not taught on Deuteronomy or preached from Deuteronomy. That I, I don't think, no, I don't think I have. Um, but there are these snippets that you could dip into, I think, oh, sure. without having to do the whole book. Uh, the love of God. The, it wasn't because you were greater than the other nations. It was not because of your righteousness that I chose you. you know, it was because that I loved you, basically. You've got those sort of – this Deuteronomy 7, I believe, and Deuteronomy 4 is strong in those regards. Of course, you have the, the, the Decalogue in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, but so the, 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 it gets kind of boring. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it that way, but for a congregation, it might get more boring towards the middle – Deuteronomy 12 to 26, where you have the laws. But you, there you have the, the prophet like Moses. You have the centralization of the temple. You have the laws for the king of Deuteronomy 17. And so uh, there is some maybe right. some um, possibility there of doing some you know, a select series or something or, mm. or a Sunday school series or something on that where you could dip into some of the uh, portions that might be more understandable. No. I mean, I, Go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say, honestly, I wish uh, someone like Phil Riken had done an expositional series through it because his stuff on Exodus <clears throat> is outstanding. Mm. And when you come to the specific case laws, I, I find, you know, when you have something, when you have a, a fairly scholarly pastor 
you know, do an expositional commentary on something like that, it makes it a lot more ma- manageable. Hmm. Um, because oftentimes I look at it and I think I'm not even sure how I would preach through case laws and make them interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a challenge, but I mean, the Lord has given us his word and it, it was applicable in a certain way to the original hearers. Uh, but he's given it to his people, and we are his people. And uh, it's important that we that we treat the whole counsel of God. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Brandon, for for joining us, not only for writing this book, but also taking the time again today to explain it to us and, and expand upon these issues. It's it's great to actually get into some text. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. I want to mention to everyone, of course, that we're available online at reformedforum.org. Please visit the website. We've got a whole bunch of new stuff. Uh, coming out. Uh, we've also got a new reading list that we're working on. It's kind of in beta, but you can uh, visit uh, the reading list at reformedforum.org slash resources slash reading list. And uh, there's all sorts of other programs on there. We're working on some new ones, uh, so keep your eyes open. Hopefully some new things will be up there uh, shortly. Uh, of course, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at Reformed Forum or email us at mail at reformedforum.org. I want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>